Last week, Reasonably Sound was hit with a copyright notice. I've been uploading the show's back catalog to YouTube, youtube.com forward slash reasonably sound. Don't forget to go like, comment, and subscribe. And upon uploading the Brahm episode for publish later this month, I was notified that AUK Records would be monetizing it. Even though I don't place ads on reasonably sound YouTube uploads, they, in this case, would do it for me and reap 100% of the rewards. They would be monetizing my work because of a one-minute clip of the original 1938 broadcast of War of the Worlds that's towards the end of the Brahm episode. YouTube's automated content ID system found that bit and then narked on me. I counter-noticed, informing a UK that the episode is protected under fair use, a doctrine of US copyright law that permits the use of copyrighted material without permission of the rights holder under certain circumstances. I'll post my justification on Instagram so that you can see it if you're curious. Um, but now we wait for up to 30 days for a UK's reply, during which time the video is marked as being in a copyright dispute and also during which time monetization isn't suspended, but benefits AUK solely, even if my usage is eventually found to be protected by fair use. I know, right? I wasn't the only one hit with a fraudulent claim last week. Sebastian Tomchek, a music technologist and instructor from Australia, uploaded a 10-hour-long video of white noise to YouTube. The visual channel is just a white field with black text reading simply low-level white noise. And the audio channel is exactly what you would expect. Upon upload, Tomchek's video was hit with not one, not two, but five copyright notices for the digital expression of a type of randomness. I know, right? What I'm curious about is how did we get here? I mean, besides the slow march of progress at some imagined conclusion of which will have surrendered every conceivable task to the machines, how is it that a random signal and my use of some 80-year-old radio broadcast are subjected to the same algorithmic misunderstanding, let's call it? What laws are at work, and how did it come to be that we have software acting dread-like judge, jury, and YouTube channel executioner to enforce them? That's what this episode of Reasonably Sound is about, the algorithmic enforcement of copyright. Why we have it, how it works, and then a little bit at the end about a future beset by copyright robots. I hope you brought your gardening jeans and a trowel, because we are about to get down in the dirt. And by dirt, I mean copyright law. Robots are snitching on your bits, monetizing them on behalf of people that you have never heard of because of a particular corner of the U.S. code, specifically the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA. To help us understand this, we're going to talk to Parker Higgins. Uh, my name is Parker Higgins. I have worked for a long time on copyright policy and advocacy, and that's involved analysis of, of policy proposals and analysis of the law as it stands and uh, speaking with tech companies about copyright enforcement on their platforms. The DMCA stands for the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and it's turning 20 this year. It was passed in 1998. It, in part, 
implements uh, some international treaties that were agreed to in 1996. So this is this is the copyright policy as envisioned in the 90s, basically. The DMCA is a really big law. We don't update copyright law too frequently in this country. And so um, the ma last major reform was in 1976. The DMCA aimed to change a number of things to kind of account for the introduction of the internet mostly. It has a number of sections uh, to especially kind of controversial and discussed sections, but the one that platforms and, and user-generated content type people talk about a lot is called Section 512. Section 512 sets forth what sorts of rules internet content providers have to follow to not get in trouble. Content providers, aka platforms, aka online service providers, aka OSPs, they have a lot of names. They distribute everything from major market media and mass culture, like TV shows and pop records, to UGC, or user-generated content, a semi-loaded term that describes things made by people as opposed to media companies. Parker explains, So before the DMCA, if you were a platform that hosted user-generated content, you might have this problem where if someone was using your tool to directly infringe copyright, then maybe you would be liable for secondary or contributory infringement because they were using your tools or your platform. And because copyright liability damages, the monetary damages for infringement are so high, that was a scary situation for anybody who was setting up user-generated content. So the bargain that was struck was uh, as long as you comply with uh, with you know a checklist of very specific practices, you will not be held liable for that kind of secondary infringement. The the most common things on that checklist, so the thing that we encounter most often, is uh, what's called notice and takedown. If you have what's called specific knowledge of an infringement, you have to take it down. And the way that you give a platform specific knowledge is you send them a detailed notice saying what thing is infringing. The like limitation of liability around secondary infringement here, that's called a safe harbor. So as long as you comply with all these practices, you as a platform are in a safe harbor from, from liability. That covers things that your users are doing that might be infringement, you won't be held responsible for them. You've maybe heard the DMCA used as a verb, meaning to remove from the internet. In order to benefit from the safe harbor provision, the portion of the law that waives an OSP's liability for their dirty, awful, untrustworthy, copyright disrespecting users, they often strike down infringing content or they may re-monetize it. Keep it up, but place ads on it that benefit the rights holder, not the uploader, like with the Brahm episode. Technically, these DMCA services or features are available to everyone. If you are a burgeoning creator and you upload some original work, but then someone else re-uploads it, you can DMCA that re-upload. But as Parker explains, frequently in in terms of the, the notices we, that we actually see get seen. It's a record label or a movie studio or a game developer, um, but it could be anybody who has, you know, anybody who's got any sort of copyrighted work underlying it, which could be all sorts of things. The vast, vast majority of DMCA notices are from large media corporations, but hold the internet content provider phone here. My video was DMCA'd minutes after it was uploaded while it was set to private, invisible to the public. How did AUK find me so quickly? I mean, it is, and it has always been, the responsibility of rights holders 
to find infringing content and send notice to the OSP hosting it. It is Interscope Geffen A&M Records' job, for instance, to find illicit uploads of the certified six times platinum 2000 Limp Biscuit hit record Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water and inform, say, Bandcamp or the Free Music Archive of its presence. To maintain their safe harbor, to not get sued into oblivion, those services have to then promptly deal with that illicit stream of the certified six times platinum 2000 Limp Biscuit hit record Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water, hey. and often punish, usually with suspension, the user who uploaded it, if they are what the law refers to quite non-specifically as a repeat offender. But this isn't how it went down for me, or Tom Chuck, or most people. There's a universe where YouTube just follows the law and, and they just do what they're required to for the safe harbor and they have the safe harbor and so no one can sue them for secondary infringement and uh, and maybe the record labels don't like it, but that's what the law says. Um, that is not the case. That is not, in fact, the case. And with almost all of the major platforms, that's not the case. Without any seeming prod from various rights holders, YouTube goes and tattles on you. Well, sort of. They preemptively and programmatically intervene on a rights holder's behalf, even though they don't have to. What nerve? And why would they go and do something like that? I thought we were pals, YouTube. We go back. We got history. After a break, services which are keen to rat you out to the man, why they do it, and how. There are three different kinds of online content providers when it comes to the DMCA and dealing with rights holders. This trifecta is outlined in a paper from 2017 called Notice and Takedown in Everyday Practice. Check out the show notes for links. And in it, the authors explain that you have your DMCA Classic, your DMCA Plus, and your DMCA Super OSPs. The vast majority are classic. They don't get too many complaints or takedown requests, and what complaints they do get, they're handled manually by a human. DMCA classic OSPs tend to not deal in video or music. DMCA auto OSPs receive tons of takedown requests, sometimes upwards of millions of them annually. So to deal with the flood of complaints, DMCA auto OSPs automate complaint response with software, and as Urban et al. put it, often sacrifice human review of the majority of automated notices they receive. Most of these OSPs are responding programmatically to complaints which are sent programmatically by outside systems combing through their content heap to find infractions. Which brings us to DMCA Super OSPs. The biggest difference between these and the last two is that they go above and beyond what's required of the DMCA. Classic and auto OSPs respond to requests as they're made by rights holders. Super OSPs get involved on rights holders' behalf and sometimes even give them special privileges. 
They may allow rights holders to take content down directly. This is allegedly the deal SoundCloud has with Universal. DMCA Super OSPs may adopt stay-down tactics, which means that when a file is flagged as offending and taken down, the system remembers it and automatically removes it if it shows up again. From what I understand, this is the case with Dropbox. These OSPs may have additional side deals with particular rights holders about how they deal with certain kinds of infringing material, and they may pre-screen or filter incoming content to determine if it might contain copyrighted works. As you may have guessed, YouTube is a DMCA Super OSP, as are Spotify and Vimeo. Super is the sort of OSP that we're going to focus on, and their content filtering systems are what we are most interested in. So it's not really a coincidence that the biggest digital content behemoths are the most super. It's it's pretty you know straightforward to see why that would happen because YouTube and you know its parent company Google um, or Alphabet they want to have a good relationship with the movie studios and with the record labels. There is no doubt endless encouragement if we want to be charitable or extortion if we want to be cynical, coming from rights holders who can benefit from exposure via these massively popular websites, but who could also bury those same websites in lawsuits if they don't play nice. This answers one of our big questions. Why would YouTube snitch on you? Well, in a phrase, they feel like they gotta. And maybe to a degree, they do gotta. Here's Parker again. The first thing that scares me about the algorithmic enforcement of copyright law, you know, to use to use that phrase, is that it's not always even copyright law. Because copyright law incorporates the concept of fair use, and algorithmic enforcement doesn't or or can't. And so we're in a situation now where the algorithms are enforcing the version of copyright law that the record labels wish existed or that they can convince YouTube exists. YouTube probably doesn't want another potential $1 billion lawsuit with Viacom dropped on its doorstep, so they play nice. They play very nice, often at a great cost, both figuratively, if we count the benefits of copyright law people don't get from automated filtering systems, but also literal cost. Angstrom et al. point out that the filtering system YouTube built to catch potential infringement at upload cost them a cool $60 million, and SoundCloud's system cost them more than 5 million euro while still needing seven full-time employees to maintain. These filtering systems are not only expensive, but insanely complex. They're the subject of much scrutiny. The sources for this episode are a bunch of papers written by a bunch of policy nerds and copyright lawyers trying to understand how filtering and takedown work both practically and legally. And yet, except for one case that we're going to get to really soon, no one is really sure how this software functions. And I mean, yeah, of course it's a black box. If they let you know how it works, then you would know how to circumvent it. And then they would have to spend another $60 million reinventing their algorithmic copyright bodyguard. But okay, we know why DMCA super OSPs go above and beyond. Next, let's talk about how these systems have grown up over the years and take a look at how one of the more recent content filters does its thing. Filtering systems work best on text, audio, and video. So if you make 3D models, architectural drawings, or software, there's no automated content filtering system for your work. 
These systems also only work on unencrypted whole files. So encrypted files or piecemeal transfer techniques like BitTorrent are exempt. Entire unencrypted MP3s of early 21st century new metal records, though, they can deal with that no problem. At first, content filtering systems were metadata-based. When someone uploaded an audio file titled lowercase x, uppercase x, lowercase x, chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water full stream, lowercase x, uppercase x, lowercase x, a system could flag it for deletion based on that title. But what if that audio file was actually a home recording of someone describing how to make a chocolate starfish in hot dog flavored water? That's a false positive. Those are unreliable results. The system needs slow and inefficient human verification. Um, so, I mean, what you want to do is uh, to just make sure that you let your hot dog steep uh, for at least four, five hours. I mean, it depends upon how strong of a, like a hot dog flavor you really want. But um... Next, Takedown Tech moved to hash-based matching. When infringing files are found, before they're removed, they're turned into a hash, a numeric representation of that particular digital file. But whoops, if you transcode that file into a different format, if you pitch it down a few hertz or speed it up 1%, the hash is different because the file is different. It's easily circumvented. And just a brief digression here on the great lengths that some people have gone to to defeat hash-based copy protection, especially on YouTube and especially in the community of anime fans. Oh, man, endless audiovisual trickery deployed in a vain attempt to distribute even barely watchable animus. I'm gonna make a playlist and I'll put some in the show notes and over at reasonablysound.com. There are some choice specimens that are, dare I say, artful. The majority of content filtering systems use a technique similar to hash matching that's more robust and much harder to circumvent with pitch or speed changes. It's called fingerprinting. And this overall is the most mysterious set of techniques. But EchoPrint, the content filtering system used by Spotify and a few other services, is open source. Angstrom et al. summarize its operation like so. First, it creates, you guessed it, a fingerprint of whatever copyrighted media is made available to it. Echoprint does this by analyzing eight distinct frequency bands of a sound file, looking for relative rhythmic onbeats, the spikes basically in the waveform. It does this in overlapping segments throughout the track. The system then stores these frequency banded onset fingerprints in a massive database. When a person uploads a new file, a similar fingerprint is made and used to query that database. Since there's lots of music in the world, and lots of it is similar, the system generates a score for how similar the relative onsets are to any number of tracks in the copyrighted materials database. The higher the score, the more likely a match, and the more likely a match, the more likely it'll get flagged as infringing. So that's roughly how it works, but there's one detail we sort of sailed past that's pretty important. I said looking for relative rhythmic onbeats. That means the system doesn't measure the actual and absolute distance between onsets, but their relative distance. Which means if you were to slow down or speed up the track, the fingerprint would still work. In the way you, a human, would still know it's the reasonably sound theme if I made it an octave lower, 
Echoprint knows that it's still Fred Durst an octave higher. The system is, in effect, measuring the perceptual qualities of music and translating them into algorithmic quantities. We're going to sit and just think about that for just a second. Are the machines listening to music? Are they listening right now? Parker told me that, as he sees it, this sort of filtering technology isn't all bad. The YouTubes of the world like to point out that it sometimes allows things to stay online that otherwise just would have been taken offline altogether. Um, in the sense that, like, as a record label, you can configure your business rules to say, okay, don't allow an ad to run on the song, but they can, they can put it up non-commercially. Um, and okay. But we also agreed that there are at least a couple dystopias that one could extrapolate from knowledge that the machines are always listening, paired with the expectation that communication and culture will become increasingly digital and increasingly mediated. In a way, we're already living in some version of the dystopia. The EFF, TakedownAbuse.com, and other organizations catalog abuses in the form of a wall of shame or DMCA horror stories, situations where overzealous takedowns have discouraged or outright impeded legitimate work. People have reported their videos being targeted for using the same royalty-free musical loops prepackaged with GarageBand or Logic as another video in the fingerprinting database. Several video game reviewers have alleged that only their negative reviews are ever struck. NASA was hit with a copyright notice when its own footage, required by law to be in the public domain as it is taxpayer-funded, was used by a news organization in a copyrighted broadcast. And famously, a couple years ago, Warner Brothers sent countless DMCA notices for pieces of media it did not actually own, as well as some of its own streams, including one on Amazon. If you make your living off of YouTube ads or videos containing cultural history or criticism, make sure you bake in an extra 30 days to your process to account for copyright disputes. And let's not forget about being sure that you have uploaded 100% unique white noise to avoid getting in trouble with... Merlin Symphonic Distribution on behalf of Rachel Conwell. Not to be a Debbie Downer, that's just how things are. But let's go full cyberpunk and imagine a set of technologies that aren't necessarily better, just more powerful. Fingerprinting could become, say, informational by way of its perceptual tactics. What if databases of copyrighted works could not only judge similarity, but determine content? No, in even some perfunctory way, 
what those works are about, what meaning they contain. How many tinfoil-hatted hops, steps, and jumps does it take to extend this to overtly political speech? The real danger, as I see it, is that once a system's in place for matching certain kinds of speech that has some you know, property, some flag, where right now we say the flag is uses a copyrighted work, and then the system's in place for, and so we remove it and or we keep it down, uh, there's no reason why that has to be limited to copyright. And we're already beyond the what the law says you have to do. The law says you don't have to do any proactive policing, and yet the major platforms all do this kind of proactive policing with with algorithmic enforcement. To which you might say, uh, hold on, I mean, we have laws for this sort of thing, protecting the freedom of speech and criticism and commentary. Like, weren't we just talking about fair use a few minutes ago? Surely we're not so boned as to warrant all of this creepy music. And maybe you're right. But in our conversation, Parker also reminded me of political activist, lawyer, and copyright scholar Lawrence Lessig's Bon Mott that code is law. And, and it ends up being, yeah, where it matters a lot less what the law says if the layer of code uh, that enforces the law differs. If you can't upload this video, then it doesn't matter whether you have the legal right to upload the video. Actual U.S. law may be easier to adjust and address, and as we've demonstrated, is maybe even more forgiving than the highly secretive, exceptionally complex computer code that multi-billion dollar multinational corporations use to enforce those laws as they interpret, and in some cases, prefer them. Code may not literally be law in the legal sense, but that doesn't mean it won't guide the actions you can and cannot take. Normalizing what isn't already legally required, but which may one day become legally required because, hey, I mean, that's how we do it anyway. If code is not law, it may at least be a beta test for it. And sure enough, every year, the RIAA and MPAA lobby for increased copyright regulation, including mandatory filtering technology on all internet OSPs, regardless of their size. Luckily, the cases against such a requirement have thus far outweighed the cases for. Such a potential future is worrying, not just in the abstract, but also for very practical reasons. Besides the extreme cost of building and maintaining these systems, as we've seen, they also don't really work. Urban et al. found that fully 30% of automated DMCA takedown requests are fraudulent, or at the very least, questionable. They write, in 1 in 25 cases, targeted content did not match the identified infringed work, suggesting that 4.5 million requests in the entire six-month dataset were fundamentally flawed. Another 19% of the requests raised questions about whether they had sufficiently identified the allegedly infringed work or the allegedly infringing material. They found that upwards of 70% of the takedown notices sent in relation to Google's image search service, quote, raised serious questions about validity. Angstrom et al. report that the failure rate of Echoprint is in the range of 1% to 2%, which seems small percentage-wise, but when you take into account the number of files it processes, it is 
ginormous in actuality. While many rights holders are of the mind that even if one protected work is infringed upon, the filtering system is broken, my feeling is the reverse, that even if one fair use is taken down, the filtering system is broken. The rudder for pulling evasive maneuvers away from such a dystopia rests in the hands of the people who use the services being encouraged towards such draconian measures. The hope is that we, civilians and not corporations, or lawmakers bought and sold by corporations, can exert enough pressure to avoid such a technocratic nightmare. So, to provide a sense of balance, let's imagine a course set for a machine-aided copyright utopia. In the last several weeks, it's been reported that there is evidently little apparent interest in extending copyright terms in the U.S. For as long as I've been alive, no works have entered the public domain, except those which were forced through litigation, the notable example being Happy Birthday to You, and a very few number of works which, according to the Center for the Study of the Public Domain at Duke Law, are unpublished works that were created by authors who died 50 or more years ago and were not registered with the Copyright Office before 1978. I'm not sure how many works that accounts for, but I'm guessing it's not many. Successive copyright term extensions have kept now ancient creations protected for an absurd amount of time. According to one estimate that I found, the oldest thing still protected by copyright in the U.S. is some writing by John Adams from 1753, which, because of its published date, won't be in the public domain until 2062, giving it 309 years of protection source for this in the notes. It seems there's increasing recognition about how ridiculous that sort of thing is, and increasingly broad support for culture to shift into the public domain, where it can be owned and used by everybody. If this attitude prevails, and dare we say, pervades, one can imagine a copyright future where filtering systems aren't used just punitively, but also encouragingly to let people know what's available to them. Beyond the public domain, filtering systems could track and identify works which are Creative Commons licensed, as reasonably sound is, and as this music is, to make sure that they're credited and linked to appropriately. Maybe it is too much to ask filtering systems of the future to be able to correctly judge fair use, but maybe it's not too much to ask that they be even a little less sure of themselves and collaborate more with humans. Oh, and uh, at the very least, know what white noise is. Man, I hope I don't get a copyright strike for this. My name is Mike Rignetta, and this podcast has been reasonably sound. Conveniently, in the middle of editing this episode, my copyright dispute notification disappeared, which I think means that AUK has backed off. So, thanks, friends. The Brahm episode will be published ad-free on YouTube on January 22nd at 2 p.m. Eastern. 
You can find Reasonably Sound on Twitter and Instagram at ReasonablySND and me at Mike Rugnetta. If you want to support the show, you can do so per episode at Patreon.com forward slash Reasonably Sound or monthly at D.RIP forward slash Mike Rugnetta. Thanks a million times over to the show's patrons and supporters without whom it literally would not be possible. And an extra double special thanks to Keith Brony, Johnny C, and Joe Krasinski. This episode's copyright dystopia music was the CC BY licensed track Golden Eye by Daniel Birch and Ben Pegley, and its copyright utopia music was the CC BY licensed track It Looks Like the Future, But It Feels Like the Past by Dr. Turtle. Both were found on the Free Music Archive. Thanks also to Parker Higgins, who you can follow on Twitter at XOR. I think that is the shortest handle of anyone I follow. I'm going to have to ask him at some point how he managed to land that one. Reasonably Sound's theme and act break music are by Will Stratton, and its visual design is by Tita Tepp. 